Today on Rebuilders, we are looking at morality in the grey zone. We are going to open the vault and release the sin chart. (laughs) Watch out. (laughs) The sin chart is something we came up with, which describes the different moralities that are competing in the world today and perhaps even in ourselves. That's one of the issues of grey zone. There are multiple visions of what it is to be good, what is evil. We can explore all that today and hoping that it's something which really speaks to you in your context and perhaps illuminates what's going on in the world. Great. And if you want more resources from this episode uh, or have a little bit of a behind the scenes chat, you can subscribe to our mailing list by heading to rebuilders.co. Let's get into the episode. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name's Liddy and I'm here but not here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both? Good. I'm good. How are you, Daniel? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you, Liddy? Where, Where are, are you? I'm doing well. I am at home and uh, so tuning in remotely uh, to this episode, which is a bit fun, a bit novelty. Mm. Mm. We've done it a couple times before, haven't we, but not probably. Yeah. Um, I think I did it in my cupboard one time oh. to help with the sound. <laughs> Going way back, I wonder, wasn't there an early, early rebuilders where we were all in a cupboard? It was like a former <laughs> storeroom. I mean, oh, no cupboards probably. Oh. No, that w- yeah, that was you and I when we were first starting to look at um, what podcasting could look like. And yeah. <laughs> was it terrible? There's a photo somewhere. I, yeah. If I can find it, I'll put it in the subscriber chats. I think I'm holding a- like You're a, holding a blow-up inf- cactus. Inflatable cactus, yeah. 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 Is that- in what is now the storeroom in the office. Yes, yeah, yeah, completely, yeah. completely renovated, but back then <laughs> was, was, possum, was not. Possum infested. Yes. Yeah. yes. Cupboard. I mean, yeah. I think there's still possums that are hanging around in there. Yeah. Bless them. In the walls. Good on your possums. Yeah. Well, um, any any interesting news happening? Well, it's, 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 it's really cold in Melbourne, like it was below free. Wasn't it one of the coldest mornings? It was minus one this morning. In- yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, Melbourne. I I screenshotted the um the weather app this morning when I woke up and what did it say? It said it was negative two point four yeah, wow. in Blackburn and it felt like negative four point seven. Wow. Well I went for a walk in it pretty early. It oh, was, good that was on fun. You. Um but interestingly, like you got this weird thing where then in the UK it's like forty degrees centigrade, like mm. a hundred yeah, degrees, hitting new records and and fires fire, and all yeah. kinds of crazy stuff. Which yeah. it, it did make me think because often like I'll be in summer here and it'll be like really hot and you're hiding inside mm. and you talk to people in the UK and they're like, "Oh, I hope you're enjoying your summer." And you're like, "I don't, I don't think you guys understand." <laughs> like, yeah. like I, I, you know, I'm inside with all the curtains thing. It is too hot to go outside. So I think you know. But again, too, just signs of absolutely crazy stuff happening in our weather system. Yeah. 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 Stay safe out there, everyone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you need some tips on uh, how to keep cool. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the Brits could teach us Australians how to deal with cold weather, and yeah. we could teach them how to deal with hot weather. Yeah. Yeah. A bit of a bit of a swap, a knowledge swap. Uh, One one thing I I was thinking about this morning, I do find interesting. We have uh, Ryan, who works on our team, who is a former. Um, Englishman. We're still an Englishman. Yeah. <laughs> well, he just lives here. Now. resident of England. <laughs> but he, like, we're, we are all rugged up like two or three layers during winter, and he's in shorts and t shirt. Yes. Um, yes. There's just something, there's a, an acclimatization. But he did, I said to him, Did you do this in the UK? And he's like, Yeah. So, 
So I, I read to find a So maybe it's, it's more like, him. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's not just <laughs> I'm just going to box every every other person in the UK into the Ryan's category. Well, I know yeah. a lot of people. When you talk to a lot of people in Europe who've lived in Australia, particularly Melbourne, they talk about how much colder our winters are for them because we're not our houses aren't as built to yes. keep the heat out. You know, yeah, and yeah. I think that'd be like I've been in like Europe when it's like 30 degrees centigrade, and you're in a house and you're just sweating because they're built. To retain heat, yeah, you know? yeah. So I think that's part of the problem is that as we get more extreme weather events, our houses our are more set up for. A, yeah, yeah, it's just not not you know they're talking like you know roads melting in England, and I know our train lines and stuff are sort of built so much not to do that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And um, but yeah, changing environments, mm, speaking changing of moods. changing changing environments. Mm. Uh, well, first off. I, I will say that I think the catalyst you were mentioning, Mark, the catalyst for this episode uh, was you watching Woodstock 1999. Um, yes, and if you want to hear a little a documentary, uh, if you want to hear a little bit more about that, we'll include a bit of a discussion on that in um, subscriber chats. But what we're focusing on today. Can, can is- I just interrupt, Liddy? Sorry, uh, and look, I'm interrupting. You can. No, that's fine. Is this a trend? Because this happened last week with Shinzo Abe, where I do tend to go down rabbit holes on, <laughs> on theories, and I just sort of feel like maybe I'm being corralled into subscriber chats. So the audience is being divided into the key information you need to know. But if you want to come down a rabbit hole into something like <laughs> the, the Unification Church in Japan um, and its history to the Cold War, or this week, what Woodstock '99 teaches us about changes in morality uh, you can join us in subscriber chats i am teasing this is this is a deliberate thing yeah but like yes maybe kinder mark ooh, yeah ooh. <laughs> listeners um, help yeah uh so today we're focusing on the way that morality and sin how does that operate in a gray zone world um what's good what is considered sin are there agreeable things, you know, that are we all agree on that is a, mm. a moral code by which we live by or is it all completely disparate? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of this I think also we – I did a sermon. I think it may have been Good Friday. Was it, it was Good, Good Friday? Friday. Yeah, I did a little, um, little look. And uh, I put up a chart – of different moral visions that are existing in our world today. And it was one of those moments where you realize there's a resonance because you put up a chart and you then turn around and you look at the congregation and sort of every person was taking a photo of it with their phone. So you're like, yes. this is, there's, there's a resonance here. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's now lovingly known as the sin chart. <laughs> yes, yes. So we're calling it the sin chart. Um, and in the office, we have been talking about the sin chart. So maybe that's what we should call this episode, the sin chart. Yes. Um, Done. But um, Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher, wrote a book in 1981 and it was a big hit for a philosophical sort of ethics morality book uh, called After Virtue, A Study in Moral Theory. And he begins with this illustration and he talks about imagine a culture where the scientific belief and the scientific method and the scientific knowledge of a culture came under some sort of sustained cultural attack. What if people started burning science textbooks, laboratories were torched, uh, scientists were imprisoned? Um, and that whole system for, say, 30, 40 years came under sustained attack. Um, I'm paraphrasing his argument a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Uh, came under sustained attack. 
what would it look like after that? He argues that what you would have is you'd have fragments of scientific belief. Maybe over there in the Czech Republic, there'd be some people who still understand parts of physics. Somewhere else, people might understand astronomy or bits of biology, but we wouldn't have a complete picture of what biology looked like or astronomy or physics or uh, whatever. And you would have this very fragmented collection of shards of scientific knowledge, um, but no coherent whole. And it'd be really difficult to actually do any scientific endeavors because the system had come under attack. So he pitches this picture for the first couple of pages, but then he sort of does this little twist and he says, effectively, that's what happened to moral theory. That throughout human history, uh, different cultures have had these great moral visions of what is the good life? What is a good person? What is virtue? What is evil? What is good? What is bad? How do we be virtuous? How do we eradicate evil? Um, how do we be moral creatures? Um, but he talks about the fact that in the West, effectively what's happened is that's been under sort of a sustained attack. It's been deconstructed. It's been pulled apart. It has no coherent whole. There's fragments which float around the place, um, but often they're contradictory. Um, and so in many ways, I thought that's a really, that's something when I first read that a number of years ago, it captured my attention as something which I think was really true as to mm. our predicament. However, thinking about it more, I sort of feel like where we are now in our grey zone moment, and I think this is one of the markers of grey zone, that there's no overarching moral framework, Yes, is that we have this view that uh, there is this, there's morality is there, but then we have almost now those shards of fragmented moral visions are almost now coalescing into movements. So I would argue today, and this is where we're going to go, is that there are competing moral visions now in our culture. Mm -hmm. Often people talk about post-Christian culture, secular culture, Western culture. But really one of the things I want to argue today is that underneath that, there are multiple competing claims you know, around what is a good life, what is a moral life. Um, one example of this I, I just uh, saw recently, which I thought was fascinating, and I don't want to make this about the actual issue because I, I want to make a bigger point. But it was interesting. I saw an interview with the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, and she basically was talking. She was asked in the interview about the sort of quite stringent um, uh, sort of different uh, approaches to the pandemic that New Zealand had integrated, you know, integrated, very similar to our country and particularly our state, Victoria. Uh, you know, people who couldn't get back in the country. There was a, a mm. new story. I think there was a young woman who was pregnant and I think she was um, maybe in Afghanistan, couldn't get back into the country. And so sort of this sort of new story in, in, in New Zealand because the Taliban actually gave her sort of, you know, uh, asylum or whatever to, you know, have her sort of child or whatever. I think mm -hmm. she may have ended up getting to New Zealand. So people, you know, this is sort of the questions that they were sort of asking the prime minister. And she said something really interesting. She said, yes, we did all that stuff. And I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's not really our values. I didn't really want to do that stuff. It's not really our values. And for mm -hmm. me, it just was fascinating because hang on, it's like, and again, too, I don't want to make that about the pandemic or what New Zealand should have done or whatever, because this could be about <coughs> many things, mm. but almost this division of, well, here's my values, but I'm actually going to do this. And it, but it's not like hypocritical. It's like we have these, you know, I often think about this at, I was at one, one, airport um, in Europe and they had these signs up, you know, we're, we're inclusive, you know, like, you know, different things that had, you know, sort of things about racism and they had these different things pushing against, um, you know, you know, like an anti-transphobia sort of poster. But you're in these lines and then you're getting to this border 
and I'm watching people being turned around, you know, yeah. and sent for extra questioning. And it's one of those moments like, hang on, there's two, there's two moral visions at play here. There is this very inclusive message, which you hear in the West of inclusivity and tolerance, yet you don't have the right visa. You're from the wrong country. You are going home. You will be deported. Um, and I read a story not long after that of actually someone being deported from that particular country mm. for something incredibly minimal. So you've got these like confusing realities. So that's a big picture version. But then I think also like people who are doing ministry, leading, even in ourselves, these now, when you talk to a congregation, when you talk to a group, when you're leading an organization, when you're just talking to people on the street, there's multiple conflicting moral visions at play in the world at this point in time and often even inside of ourselves. Mm. So I thought it'd be really helpful today to sort of pull some of them apart and you know, ask what's happening underneath the hood of these competing moral visions. Great. Well, shall we have a look at what these moral visions are? Yes. Or these, I guess, aspects of morality that we've got in this chart. The sin chart. And just to help people understand the sin chart, the sin chart has four uh, or five questions on Mm -hmm. the sort of axes. And we can put this in the subscriber notes, which is another reason to join our subscriber chats, which how do they do that, Liddy? Uh, You can head to rebuilders.co and subscribe there. So this... this, um, For each of these, we're going to ask, what does it say is the purpose of life? What is sin? What is the world? What is its attitudes towards faith? And what's the solution it proposes to the moral ills of the world? So that's sort of, we'll go through each of them for all of these. All righty. Well, let's start with uh, hedonistic. Hedonistic. Hedonism is effectively the belief that life is pleasure. That's really where this comes from. So mm-hmm. people may have heard that. Again, too, there's very few people, you may hear it sometimes, people go, I'm a hedonist. Yeah, this is baked in to Western culture. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd say particularly, you know, this is linked to the modern world. You know, mm. you see this sort of vision appear at different times throughout history. You know, you see in romanticism, the movement where, you know, to move sort of away from the drudgery of modernity and the mechanical sense of the world, you know, let's get back in touch with the sort of sensual and and the physical and enjoyment, Mm. you know, and it bursts up at different times throughout Western history. But effectively, Mm. what its purpose of life, it says, is the driving purpose of life is to experience good, good, or is to experience, you know, good experiences and to experience pleasure. Yeah. So what is then in the uh, hedonistic moral compass, what is considered a sin? So sin is preventing pleasure. So if the goal of life is pleasure, yes. sin is preventing pleasure. And, you know, you see these, um, uh, you know, movies where people – what was that movie? There was a movie I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. and it what, was it Pleasant Phil? There was a movie where it was sort of like a 1950s- Yes, yes, exactly. Leave it to be the sort of world. I taught it to year 10 media students. Fascinating. Mm. And it was interesting in that movie that almost is the structure of 1950s sort of square society is stopping people enjoying pleasure in some mm. form or whatever. And I think, isn't it in the movie they become, it's black and white, but then colour comes in- Yes, when, when they, they start- they, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Experiencing a world yeah. outside of the rules and confines of yes. the 1950s. Um, yes, yeah. And that's an historical – it's interesting because that's an historical framework of understanding history right there. It's that uh, 
the 1950s, up to the 1950s, we're in this very square world which repressed pleasure. And then in the 1960s onwards, we went through this cultural change in the West where we began to become okay with pleasure. Yes. And then there was almost a conversion, a transformation, let's use religious language, an awakening, a revival yes. of these well, more ancient ways. Yeah. Interestingly enough, in that film, there was a lot of um, that awakening biblical type language being used. Interesting. Um, to articulate what was happening with the young people mm. and mm. also the the only reason why it happened in the context of that film was because uh, these teenagers from the future got sort of pushed into that That's world. Right. They went through the television, um, wow. as you do, uh, to be in that space. So It's yes. like another, another version of uh, Back to the Future. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But that's so strong. I mean, you go back to, you know, you think about people talking about, you know, the appearance. I haven't seen the new Elvis movie, but, you know, the appearance of Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show and um, yeah, was okay. seen as this catalytic moment of, you yeah. know, him sort of, you know, swinging his hips around was like shocking at the time, yeah. you know, sort of. But that that plays into this great narrative, you know. Um, uh, and, and almost too, so just to use one from the, Ma is it Matrix 1 or 2? I can't remember. There's like one where, you know, in that movie, there's the sort of like, Guys in the suits who were like the the bad, you know, the, the guardians agents. of the matrix, the yeah. agents. Um, is Hugo Weaving is he mm -hmm. one of them? Um, and then there's the cool people who have sort of come out of the system are having their rave, you know. Oh, so I it's think the that's cool, the second one. The second one. It's the cool rave versus the people oh, in suits yeah, yeah. Yeah, who yeah. work for the corporation. That's the sort of moral framework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Which kind of translates with this: what is sin? Preventing pleasure. Yes. Kind of like, oh, it's the institution or the like the systems of the. The structures of the world around us yes. and the like it's not just maybe it's not just an individual sinning it could be a, a societal yes system that's the sin rock and yeah. roll man <laughs> rock and roll <laughs> <laughs> well um how would you say that this uh, hedonism looks at the world what does it see the world as well it's, it's it sees the world as a playground Mm. Effectively, the world is there for you to enjoy and effectively what a good flourishing life is to have the maximum experiences and maximum pleasure. So, really, the world is a playground. Mm. It's for extreme sports. It's for travel. It's for, you know, self-expression and, and awakening. That's really – it imagines the world as a sense is there to serve your feel, your good – you know, this, this, the world exists to be a conduit for your pleasure, mm. um, you know, is, is really what it is. Or – Another version of it is take the badness of the world but experience the pleasure in it. So sort of transforming, you know, uh, the world through exploring pleasure within a, a difficult world is another sort of sub-variant of mm. it. And I guess anyone who has uh, been part of a church or leading in a church uh, at all for the last, what, mm. 60 years has mm. has experienced this either in themselves or in their congregations mm. Um and probably, you know, we still are in many ways. Yes. Um, I know, I like I see this in myself mm. regularly and I guess it, more confrontingly uh, when the pandemic came about and we're more restricted in our movements, you start to to question, uh, yeah, what, what, how do I see the world around me and what do I, what do I want to do and why am I being restricted? This isn't fair, mm. you know. It makes you ask all of these questions. It's just, just an interesting one too. It's it's also interesting how even parenting, this has changed. Like you mm. think about parenting was about forming with the, you know, here's, 
we're going to get character into you. It was almost the old model and still the model in many other many other uh, cultures. But now it's I want my kids to have great experiences. You hear yeah. me say this all the time, you know. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's interesting that that's yeah part. It's changed even how we form mm. the younger people in our culture. Yes. Uh, so what about what is its attitude towards faith? What's well, fascinating that its attitudes towards faith, the critique, you know, and you can go back to, um, uh, you know, that sort of fifties thing, you know, church and all this sort of stuff. It's and mm. faith. It's 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 old. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like you know, and it's not just at Christianity. It's, you know, we talk about say Sunni Islam or you know, as like Wahhabist Islam. People talk about oh, this retroactive vision of you know, like like Islam. You know, this old fashioned. We've moved beyond that. Mm. You know, so basically, the the critique that this brings against faith is faith is too moral. Why would faith ask me to you know say no to any sort of internal desires? Um, yes, it's sort of unthinkable. Um, yeah, which is really interesting. Mm. Particularly as it will relate to some of the upcoming ones. Okay. Um, and what is what's the solution? Just chill out. Less rules, more pleasure. Uh, if it doesn't hurt anyone, just do it. Yeah. Experience the world. Express yourself. Uh, say yes to your desires. Uh, get rid of your hang-ups. Look inside. What's your heart telling you to do? Uh, it's sort of very. It's it's, it's <laughs> no, funny. You that have it's, not tuned into a self help yeah, yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah, welcome, welcome, <laughs> welcome with find your heart. Uh, <laughs> welcome to find your heart. Look within, find your heart with Mark Says <laughs> on Smooth FM. <laughs> Next up is Ario Speedwagon. Um, is that a, that? Yeah, I, went over no, my head. Not sorry. with you. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, the, the, it really, I would boil it down to less rules, more pleasure, and the world will be better. You know, and, and you see this. Like, there literally was a belief. Like, like you had literal people believing that, you know, like I think it was William Reich and, you know, you had psychologists, you know, particularly mid-century believing that if literally people could – Part of the original founding theory of the sort of sexual revolution um, through people like Reich and so on was if everyone just could have unlimited pleasure, no one's going to have wars anymore. Mm. So if we get rid of all of the sexual norms of our culture, literally everyone's just going to – it's just going to be a rave, man. It's going to be Woodstock. It's just the wars will stop, you know, because it's this repressed thing. Mm. And he's got these sort of theories that the fascist – personality was actually someone who was repressing their desires and if they didn't repress them anymore they're not going to want to be fascist and control people mm-hmm. um but has this got some of its roots in freud yes yeah okay okay yeah, yeah so yeah sort of yeah 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 so i mean yeah, yeah. partially a sort of popular version of freud i would yeah. say yeah okay anything else we want to explore in that one Okay, and this is going to get really interesting, so I'll just okay. sort of put this sub-point here. Go what on. is so bizarre is this, in many ways, in some places, has now gone from a liberal or left-wing moral vision to now a conservative vision. I saw a video. I can't remember if I mentioned this on the podcast, and it was – I think it was an interview. It came up online somewhere on social media. It was like, you know, we interview conservative Kid Rock – and it's like, here's his new video. And it's like, you know, this is my like middle finger to, you know, this, you know, all those people who want to tell us what to do. And he's literally, you know, in it, he's like giving, he's like drinking, this like half naked women, he's, he's drinking beer. He's, I think he was on a rocket going up into the sky with the American flag, giving two middle fingers to whoever. 
And what's really bizarre is how this one has almost shifted. And this is sort mm. of some of the libertarianism thing as well, this sort of yeah. absolute freedom, absolute pleasure. Weirdly, as time has moved on, and this will make more sense as we go through these, that this has almost become a conservative vision. Are you looking up that video, Daniel? No, I'm just reminded of um, the song Prisoner of Society by the Living End. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yes. Australia in the 90s. Yes. <laughs> it was 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, yes. like yeah, 99, yeah. 98, yeah. 99. Yeah, Prisoner of Society. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's been told again, but it's weird now how you see particularly in, you know, what people would describe as some of the populists or new authoritarians is almost this like that. that's now what we hold on to. That's a form of, of conservatism, which is completely bizarre because it was not seen as that early on. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, shall we move on? Yes. Great. So we're going to ask those those same questions of a, a a different moral code. Can I call it a moral code? You okay with yeah. that? Yeah. yeah great. Yeah. Uh, moralistic. Yeah. So I, I tried to I tried to come up with a better term for this one, but it should make itself more clear as we go through it. I think partially what happened. You get to this point in maybe the early two thousands mm. where this sort of hedonistic thing had won. And you see almost this sort of creeping line in, you know, we talked about Seinfeld again, you know, when, when Susan dies and they're almost laughing about, you know, her death you know, yes. of, of, of the envelopes. You see sort of like culture pushing it more and more and more, yeah. the line. And I remember at the time thinking like, okay, they're really pushing it, you know, like and, and I remember thinking at some point some moral code's going to come back. And what's interesting, it didn't come necessarily from religion or it didn't come from faith, but there was almost this new moralistic tone that came in, which mm. was more around, uh, you know, has this gone far? So, like, too far. So, this probably become clearer as we go through yep. the different elements. All right. So, in a moralistic worldview, what is the purpose of life? Well, it's interesting. This one is to do good. Now, okay. that sounds really obvious. Okay, there's a moral view to do good, like, duh, whatever. But if you think about the shift that happens from early social media where people – and this is still happening, mm-hmm. evidence of the conflicting visions. But online, you are making yourself you're, – you're at a party. You're having a fantastic time at the beach. You are living the hedonistic life. Mm. But then this term people start using is virtue signaling, right? Yes. And virtue signaling uh, is an evidence that the – thing that people are wanting to put out there as their identity is the resurgence of a kind of moral code. Yes. Because if you don't want to – if you want to put out that I'm a good person, there was almost like you wanted to be bad before. That was what had social currency. Yes. But the idea that we talk about things like virtue signaling shows that there's a cultural force and a cultural new re-emergent moral vision, which is actually about being a virtuous person. So, there's like a new post-Christian, whatever you want to call it, emergence – as reaction, I think, against hedonism, mm-hmm. a reaction of like, hang on, we've got to put a line here somewhere. Yes. That sort of emerges. And, and some people have talked about this is the shift from, um, I think, John Gray, the philosopher, an, an, uh, an article on this or an essay on this, like hedonism is almost liberalism. Like you do what you want to do. It's around freedom. You make your yeah. choice. But then he talks about hyper-liberalism where it's like, hang on, if we let everyone do their own thing, it's going to actually undermine liberalism. So we've got to bring in some safeguards here. So that it's almost a reaction to the excesses of liberalism is to create what he calls hyperliberalism, which is liberalism with a with new boundaries. moral code. Yeah, with yeah. boundaries yeah. And, and yeah, enforcement. 
Okay, interesting. I've certainly seen um, a lot of that, uh, the virtue signaling things coming up, oh, like everything to do with, you know, um, individual identity, uh, uh, race, like uh, I guess a lot of it came up um, over the last two years with the mm. uh, Black Lives Matter mm. protests and then um, what what does it look like to be, to be an ally and how do you signal that but then who can use particular language and who can't. Mm. Um, so whilst there's boundaries, it seems like there's like different people hold different boundaries. There's no like clear mm. boundaries as to what's mm. okay and what's not. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I mean that, that's, a, that's a, a fascinating point because many of those things have always been there. Like there's yes. always been anti-racism campaigners. There's always been people, you know, working at sexism, all these things, environment, whatever it is, it's always been there. But it's, yeah. it's a particular like they weren't cool. You know, for, for a long mm, time, you mm. know what I mean? But there's an element of there's an increased social value put on that. Now, look, some of it is genuine response to stuff. But I, I also do think that more on the front side of when you see it in marketing and so on, you know, I don't know if I've talked to you about the Battle of Seattle um, again, 1999. Have I spoken about the Battle of Seattle? I don't know that you have. Okay. Battle of Seattle was the protest that occurred in Seattle at the World Trade Organization. So, what you had is the world was globalizing and you had this World Trade Organization which would come together, different corporations, global leaders. It was one of the sort of elite gatherings of Mm -hmm. trade in the world. And there was very much talk that, you know, since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, we've talked about that a lot, politics was dead, that we were going to smoothly move towards Fukuyama's end of history Then what happens is you have this Battle of Seattle. People talked about the left was dead, like the economic left was dead. Communism Mm. had fallen. Then they have this gathering in Seattle and there was actually a genuinely significantly huge grassroots movement of trade unions, traditional leftists who came together to protest what they saw as some of the effects of globalization, offshoring of jobs, unemployment, you know, this sort of stuff, uh, growing uh, gap between rich and poor. Now, what had, what had happened was you had companies like Ben & Jerry's, Starbucks, Microsoft, uh, which had grown up and they come almost out of that hedonistic, you know, yeah. worldview. They were the yeah. 60s generation hippies who, you know, became business people and all of a sudden, you know, had those values, but they were also corporate, you know, mm-hmm. and making money. And everyone was talking about this as the sort of new kind of, you know, business in the world. It was like cool capitalism. But then at the Battle of Seattle, you have this genuine protest, like tens of thousands of people turned up. The police were not ready. Um, And you had images of Nike stores, of Starbucks being attacked. And I think that this caused a tremendous crisis of identity in a lot of these corporate leaders. And sweatshops all of a sudden got spoken about. The work of the Canadian magazine Adbusters for some time began to point out the ways that this core capitalism was saying one thing and having this very sort of progressive, hedonistic, you know, 60s generation view of the world yeah. and its marketing, yet then there's a sweatshop in the Philippines over yep. here or whatever. Um, so I think there was actually a, a quite an effective campaign that was coming against them. And I think this sent them into a spin. So what you saw after that was a lot more advocacy of causes. Yes. But what's really interesting is very little economic. (laughs) 
So I wonder whether, you know, part of all of this, and this is just one thread, it's not the whole thing, but I do wonder at this point, there was a realization that, and there's an interesting book, it's called um, uh, Heath and Potter wrote The Rebel Cell. Uh, Thomas Frank also wrote The Conquest of Cool, where they sort of get into this. But the idea that at this point, they freak out and like, we've got to be seen to be good. Because all of a sudden, it was like they were called on, you're saying you're good, 60s generation, you're literally the corporates you rebelled against, you've become them. Yes. And so then you see the advocacy of different different sort of causes, but it's never, ever what the CEO is making. <laughs> you know, it's never economic. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, this sort of like whatever you want to call it, you know, inverted commas, woke left. I wonder if a lot of that actually emerges as there's a deliberate engineering through marketing and so on of a move away from anyone talking about economic uh, imp- economic injustice. Not the only reason, but I also wonder whether that's something behind this sort of new putting of virtue forward, particularly more yes. by companies, which then yeah. individuals and consumers follow. So they're sold. You want to be a good consumer. And also is it too? There's a sense where – you know, you get to the sort of Paris Hilton moment in the early 2000s where there was an emptiness to consumerism, mm. you know, like people were sold sort of status or power or sexuality or whatever. Um, but then it's more like, no, hang on, we're going to also sell you virtue. It becomes yes. a product to sell people. So I bought this and instead of just feeling like I've just bought the 20th thing online this week, I actually bought this and I'm making a contribution as well. So it's an yeah, yes. interesting play. Not the only- yeah. That's not the only story, but I just wonder if that's one of the threads in all of this. Yeah, that um, good to explore that. Uh, so we, yeah, we've started on moralistic. We've said that the purpose of life is to do good. Mm. Uh, what is the sin? What is perceived as sin in this world? Well, often in this vision, it's the oppression that comes from ignorance. Those people don't know. They haven't. They're angry at those people because they haven't met them, or they're they're yeah. they're ignorant. Or and even if you really scratch beneath the surface, it's almost lack of intelligence is almost what people are getting at here. Yeah, yeah. And you almost get this divide between. Well, we know this because we're sort of the educated ones. And if those people just read these five books and met those people and opened their minds, uh, that oppression would go. Mm. So education becomes a big thing. And I think this is where you see a lot of these visible almost campaigns to like educate yes. people about this stuff, you know, educate everyone. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it sees it as ignorance. It's not so much a thing of the heart as it's an, it's born, maybe the heart reacts in a particular way, but it's born of ignorance. Yeah. Okay. And so what, what does the moralistic worldview see the world as? A good place ruined. <laughs> so okay. effectively, the world is good, but ignorant people create ignorant structures and that creates sin in the world mm-hmm. and oppression. And its attitude towards faith? Now, this is, this is where it's fascinating. And I think this explains why in some ways the hedonistic ones almost become a bit of a conservative thing in some sort of libertarian okay. circles. Its attitude towards faith is faith's actually too immoral. So the hedonistic one looks at the church and say, you're a bunch of squares the moralistic one looks at the church and says, you guys are immoral, you're hypocrites, you're doing this, you know, you shouldn't be doing that, you've got these these attitudes. So it's a f- complete fascinating yeah. switch uh, that is that is at play that has huge implications. has huge implications because both are at play. Interesting. So someone can turn up on Sunday who'd never been to church and like, oh, I feel stressed out being here. They're going to think I'm some sinner because I was, you know, doing this last night or whatever. Another person's turning up going, I can't believe these ignorant people who believe this stuff. Yes. Uh, 
you know, one who's who's intimidated by the virtue, one who's thinks the virtue they're not virtuous enough. Yes. Okay. And something that you've already alluded to, the solution that the moralistic worldview um, sees to sin is virtuous education. Yes. To, to educate the ignorant. Yes. Yeah. And form everyone through education and through visible education of what is the new moral code and how do we all live that? And if we do that, the world will slide towards a sort of virtuous future. Okay. Could I just add too? Yes. Um, Again, too, we've spoken about before of people, you know, when Ukraine war kicked off, like, I can't believe this is happening in 2022. That's a classic tell of someone believing this because the belief was, as we're learning more stuff, we've got more information and we're talking about this stuff more, it's going to go away. Yes. Um, But then, like, hang on, how are we still here? You know, how do we still have people like Putin when we have so much information in the world? You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's move on to uh, the therapeutic worldview. What yes. is the purpose of life in the therapeutic worldview? To feel peace. Uh, welcome back to the uh, self help podcast. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the therapeutic therapy, you know, for feelings. So it's really that it's less. I don't want the pressure of feeling good necessarily. I'm not even looking for pleasure. Just in this crazy world, I, I just want to find peace. Give me a space to feel peace. Yes. And I need to feel some inner centering and a sense of peace. Mm. And this may not necessarily be new agey kind of stuff. It could no. just even be like counseling and, and yes. like mental, like going through mental and emotional yes. health issues and that kind of stuff. Yes. Kind of the goal is oh, I just need to find that peace. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, Philip Brief had a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, you know, mm. about that concept, you know, mm. is behind this. And some of this as well is, again, those things that you just described are good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, but the problem is what we do is when we take something which is good and then we try and elevate it to an overarching moral code. Yeah. So, I think okay, this is okay. like a, a treatment for people who generally have stuff, but it's almost now it's, it's leveraged to become the thing, which is the overarching moral code. Yeah. And it's yep. stretching it beyond its capabilities. Yes. Interesting. Um, and just, you know, in a bigger sense, when we look at each of these moral codes or moral frameworks, all of them have elements of of good in them, yes. right? Yes, And all yes. of them have complete downfalls, but um, yes. we're exploring them uh, from the perspective that all of them influence us in different ways. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, so uh, what is sin in the therapeutic worldview? The causing of mental and emotional discomfort or pain. Yes. So that's really what sin is. So sin is when people experience mental or emotional pain. Yes. Okay, so the world is then perceived as what? Well, it's not a playground. It's not a good place that's ruined. It's actually a dangerous place filled with pain trauma and discomfort is is really the vision of the world. So you're actually seeking a smaller world mm-hmm. <laughs> where you don't feel those things. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And what's what's the attitude towards faith in a therapeutic worldview? Well, it's almost that it can be acceptable mm-hmm. when used as a tool for personal peace. So it's it's utilitarian. Like, you know, if meditation is making you feel peace, if prayer, mm-hmm. if going to the mosque is making mm-hmm. you feel a sense of peace. And you hear this. You hear these like they'll have little things on the news, you know, where they've sort of got multicultural stories and they'll talk about it and they'll often 
give the highlight of, you know, why do you pray at the mosque? I just have this sense of peace. Why do you meditate? I have this sense of peace. Why do you go to church, you know, when the prayers are being, oh, I have this sense of peace. So it's interesting, like whatever brings you personal peace, do mm-hmm. it. Do you know what I mean? It, it is sort of, so it's acceptable with the caveat that it brings you personal peace. Okay. Hmm. Which is difficult when you think of the prophetic tradition <laughs> and that the prophets come to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Jesus turns over tables and the Garden of Gethsemane is not a comforting moment. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, yes. like, yeah, so it's interesting. So, so it has an openness to faith, but for a particular purpose. Yes. And I mean, and again, it's interesting, yeah. sorry, talking about this within the context of us talking about the grey zone. It's yes. moving, we've been moved from a comfort zone, a place where a world in which we could, to an extent, control what was happening. Yes. And now we can't. Um, not that we have necessarily ever been able to, but um, more so. Yeah. Like it, I imagine the demand for this, well, I hear the demand for it even more. You know, we there needs to be greater support in mental health. Mm. Um, hmm. Yeah, but I don't know. And, and even, yeah. even you, um, you see the progression of all of these. Yes. In the sense of, you know, they've sort of got that 60s hedonistic, you know, thing. It goes for a while, you know, like well into the sort of 90s, you know. And then you sort of see the emergence of the new moralistic one, which people are doing. But then I think there's people exhausted by that. Pandemic comes along, world's getting crazier, gray zone dynamics. So I think you're seeing the emergence of the therapeutic more and more. It's always been there. It's been there for some time. Mm. Um, but I'm hearing this language more and more and almost it's beginning to overtake the moralistic thing a little bit as well. Um, um, I'm seeing, but yeah, we'll keep going. Okay. And so the solution to sin in a therapeutic world is? Effectively, it's harm minimization. Yeah, okay. It's it's safety from mental and emotional harm. And this, again, probably helps people feed into, you know, the concept of, you know, we need to create a, a, a place that's safe, you mm-hmm. know, and, and almost the expectation from people that leaders, and you talked about mental health, so there is, you know, 100% agree government needs to provide for mental health, not always being good at it. Mm-hmm. Um but there's also this sort of sense where there's a point where you ask, does this tip over into, and I'm, I'm asking this very carefully. Yes. Where is the government's role to make you feel good and protect you from bad feelings? It's a good question. Yes. And can they even do that mm. in a world of Putin's and economic upheaval and pandemics and environmental challenges? Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's mm. essentially asking them to control everything. Yes. So nothing bad comes. Yes. It's yes. Like the parents, the helicopter parents. <laughs> and th- and this is when I was getting back to when I talked about crossing the border in that European country. Yes. Mm. It's like, on one sense, it's like that's great to have the peace, but that means someone with a gun's got to keep ISIS out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that's not me arguing that we need to fight ISIS with a gun, but. You look at the fact that many of the countries, uh, you know, let, let's pick on three of the Anglosphere. Let's pick on, you know, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, who often think we're slightly superior in the Anglosphere because, you know, we're more tolerant or whatever. The fact is, we've got serious border guards. 
had yeah. serious anti-terrorism squads and we do stuff, you know, and we don't want to talk about that. Um, so there's this interesting element that, yeah, you have to do in, in incredible levels of control to create a world where this stuff's not coming in, particularly as it gets more difficult. You know, and I go back to the classic, I think I mentioned it before, but it's worth mentioning here, the classic NPR tweet where NPR, which is the American sort of radio, sort of like a bit like the ABC or the BBC, um, you know, when the Ukraine war began mm. and it was kicking off and everyone's watching the images on Twitter in the sort of first four hours, they put up a tweet saying, you know, if you are being, if your mental health is being affected by the social media streams of the Ukraine war, take some time to step away. And then there was responded to by Ukrainians like, I'm reading this in a bomb shelter. Like, yeah. like, how dare you, you, know, you entitled Westerners, you know. So there is an element that many people in the world do not presume. You know, if you're in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you do not think that there is a safe place that your government can create for you. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? If you're in North Korea and just many countries around the world, you know, and, and, and even I would say, you know, many people in the West whose economic circumstances are, uh, uh, or other difficulties, you know, yes. they don't believe this is possible. So there is an element that there needs to be that level of belief that there are some governing figures out there who can create this for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to the last one, uh, a nihilistic worldview. What is the purpose of life in a nihilistic worldview? Now, again, what's interesting is I, I talked about a little bit of a, 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 a um, progression through this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I see this one also kicking in now. Mm. And, you know, people are using a Duma and, you know, the Duma thing. And particularly a lot of people talk about this with Gen Z. Yeah. Um, that, you know, if you, could, if you could plot here generations, which I would never do, but I'm going to do right now because <laughs> um, it'd be too. Like just I'm, I'm painting with broad brush strokes before we get all the emails. But you could sort of say foundational for sort of the baby boomers, you know, I think was the hedonistic thing. Yeah. I would say Generation X was hedonistic with a little bit of moralistic, just a little bit. Um, Beastie Boys doing Tibetan conference, you know, con concerts. Yes. Um, I would say millennials have been very much the moralistic but a little bit of the therapeutic. <laughs> and I would yep. say that Gen Z is somewhere between the therapeutic but then heading into the nihilistic. Yes. Um, and – uh, I think this is the big emergent one and I think this one's going to grow. I'll talk about that in a second after we move yeah. through it. Okay, so the purpose of life in a nihilistic worldview is to what? Feel nothing. Mm. It, this is, um, you know, pleasure is, is hard to get to or pleasure to cover pain. Um, this is, you know, do good, what's the point? It's hypocritical. Um, feel peace, fat chance. So it's better just to feel nothing. Yeah. You know, so they they see the hypocrisy of the control thing, right? Mm. Like this is you know they see where it's going. They've not been promised that there is an achievable world where the bad can be pushed out or the world can be changed moralistically. Mm. Okay. Well, what what is what is sin in this worldview? I think it's something which you know they see it as something which is everywhere. It permeates. Yeah. You know, the left is corrupt. The right's corrupt. Everyone's mm. corrupt. Sin is everywhere. Injustice. You know, welcome to reality, suckers. Is almost the view here. <laughs> you know, where's my you know survival kit? Doomsday preppers. Yeah, it is. It's the doomsday doomer doomsday prepper sort of meme. Yeah, but, yeah. But it's it's there. You know. Yeah. Uh, so they view the world as a. a 
a disaster. Yeah. yeah. It's a disaster. And again, too, I mean, you know, again, without wanting to get into this conversation at all, but, you know, you see some of – you see in the US when there's been mass shootings, often there's this, like, conversation that begins on Twitter, oh, is this person a white supremacist? Are they Islamic terrorists? What are mm-hmm. they? You know, a lot of these people are, are doomers, <laughs> you know. There's almost an ideology of absolute nihilism that's coming through when you see these people, you know, everything's just a joke. It's almost, it's almost the sort of 4chan, you know, hatred of the world – you know, sort mm-hmm. of complete ironic detachment. There's yes. no hope, you know, sort of thing thing at play here. Um, but you're seeing this, I think, as um, the bad news gets louder. Yeah. Okay. And an attitude towards faith? Well, I think they see it as corrupt, but they see everything as corrupt. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like, oh, the church is corrupt and all those, you know, moralistic people who are secular are moral. No, they're like, yeah. no, they're corrupt. Everyone's corrupt. Everyone's got a price. Yeah. It's all corrupt. Very dark view of the world. Yeah. Sounds quite depressing. And uh, what's the solution here to to the sin of the world? I think it's to retreat, to escape. Yeah, okay. Online world of games, retreat mm. into your world, your bedroom, mm-hmm. escape somehow. Um, these people waiting for the metaverse to come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> escape, you know, alter, you know, augmented reality. You know, mm. it, it's 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 depressing out there, you know, is, mm. is these people's view. Um and, and I think that I have a sense that this group could grow, particularly as pe- the moralistic thing falls. Um, I think that there's going to be a point where people have been pushing into sort of virtue for some time and particularly when things don't change. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you look at things. I was reading an article about how there was the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement was sort of corralled and a bit controlled by the Time's Up movement, which yeah. actually I think – and and Daniel can fact check me on this. I think the Time's Up movement was actually started by the allegedly, I'll say all the provisors here, by maybe some one of the PR firms that actually was involved with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Um, right. Because there were some people in the Me Too thing who were naming people who, you know, there was memes of like Oprah with Harvey Weinstein, you know. So it was like the Harvey Weinstein was going to pull the whole house of cards down. So they had this, I think the Academy Awards, this Time's Up dinner, and mm. there were certain people who were part of the Me Too movement who didn't get invited because it was like, let's corral the energy of this thing. That's my read of it and I could be wrong. Um, but then you read like one of the Time's Up main leaders who's out there to, you know, like speak about sexism and sexual harassment, then is involved in sort of protecting um, Cuomo, I think it was the governor of New York or whatever, you know, who was doing harassment. You know, you look at that and you go, this is just all corrupt. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. I think there's an element where you're seeing a group of people can only do the virtuous thing and the world seemingly gets worse at the same time. There's mm-hmm. only so long and that continues. You know what I mean? When you see yes. the stickiness and the the um, uh, longevity of these sin patterns of humanity. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that, that uh, takes us through all four of these uh, worldviews. I wonder as we as we conclude, I think it's it's really helpful to look at these these worldviews. But Mark, what would you have uh, leaders, listeners uh, take away from this and reflect on um, in their own contexts? What do you think is most helpful in in approaching this and understanding yes. the the space in which we're we're leading? Yes. So so firstly, I would say that 
you may recognize all of these in yourself and the people. <laughs> totally. You know, in, 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 a, in a day, you can go through all of them. And yeah. I actually think probably the most accurate is if we go back to McIntyre's um, analysis, there's shards of all these things in us. Like yes. there's no coherent vision. So if McIntyre's right, and then there's also this competition between these groups, you know, you've got, you know, people who are now weirdly, you've got conservatives like Kid Rock who are like, we're the hedonists. And then there's people on the left who are like, we're the moralists. And there's other people looking, saying, everyone just calm down and find peace. And then others going, this is all hopeless. That if there's that battle going on, yet another evidence of how the moral visions, the ideologies, the things which look rock solid, the, the things which we thought were going to be the trends which shape the future are all being shaken. Yes all come under the condemnation of Christ. Mm -hmm. And what I see is the biblical vision has a alternate take on all of this. Yeah. You know, what is the purpose of life? The purpose of life is to worship God. You were created for a purpose. Mm -hmm. Men and women were created to be stewards, shomar of creation, and to be in relationship with God. What is sin? Well, sin is the effects that happen in the world, in the human heart, because we broke with God. We broke that relationship through wanting to be like gods. Humans continually have this thing to want to be like gods from you yeah. know, Adam and Eve now. That, that is what is sin. You know, what is the world? The world is this place which God has created for us as humans to live in relationship with him, to go forth and multiply, to take the things of creation and with the spirit hovering over us to transform that as offerings and worship to God. Yes. But there's sin in the world. You know, um, but the good news is our view of faith is that, yeah, we're sinners saved by grace, mm -hmm. that on the cross, Jesus pays the price for sin that we don't have to. And when he bursts out of that grave, there's an invitation for us to bend our knee and call him king and have our lives completely transformed through grace. Mm. And then to be part of the great project that he's bringing in the world of the kingdom of God that's breaking out. Underneath all of these ideologies, it calls all of them to account. It calls all of them to to you know bow before the cross. Yeah. And as you said, there's bits of truth in all of them. There there is a truth that you know God created you know, pleasure. You know, like there's elements of things yeah, in the created absolutely. world and human relationships and arts and and food and so many things which are pleasure, but in the right place. Yes. There is an element that we're also called to be people of character, to have morals. The yes. scripture has discernment and morals. There's a moral vision in scripture. We're called to be good people, but we can't do it in our own strength. Our yes. morality, our virtue comes from God. So when we detach that from Christ, mm -hmm. it runs into an idol, mm -hmm. but we are given a moral vision. But again, too, it's not something you have to do in your own strength. You know, thirdly, there is a sense that there is the peace of Christ. Jesus continually says, do not be afraid. Mm. He offers the peace of Christ. What sort of peace is it? It's not a therapeutic peace that happens because the government stops bad stuff happening or you mm. find a, a bean bag in your room and, and just bliss out to, you know, <laughs> Belgian ambient techno. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's actually a peace of Christ which is supernatural, which transcends all understanding that is ours regardless of what's happening in the world. Mm. You know, and I said people in the Democratic Republic of Congo or North Korea or whatever, you know, they don't believe the government can enforce that. But I've met believers from incredibly difficult environments mm. who are in the most persecuted, horrible moments, who are actually in the worst possible moment. I've spoken to people who have been put in jail and they enter into the cell and the peace of God comes over them. Mm. So it's a peace of God regardless of the circumstances. That's what God offers us. Yeah. And the nihilistic thing, there is an element, yeah, it is corrupt. <laughs> the powers and principalities are corrupt. Leaders will find themselves having the heart of Saul so often. We hear that story. We sadly hear that story sometimes in the church. Yes. And there is the prophetic thing, but it's not nihilistic in that there's not hope. Nihilism is the prophetic without hope. 
So, you know, yes, there are all these systems and structures of the world which are being shown up for the hypocrisy and the oppression and the injustices that they hide or are overt about. But where this story is going is Christ will return. He's building his church. We're invited to be part of that kingdom of God. And God is continually at work in the world and resurrection power is breaking out. That was me doing that real quick. But I think that the project that people are invited to at this moment is this is actually good news because mm. like if there was just one, you know, when it's just the hedonistic one or just the moralistic one or just the therapeutic one or just the knowledgeistic one, that's hard. All are under pressure. None are satisfying people. McIntyre's right. It's shards of stuff. It's no coherent whole. Is everyone going to listen? No. But there are going to be people who go, I'm exhausted by this uh, or I want hope or I've had all the pleasure of the world and it hasn't satisfied the God-shaped hole inside of me, or I can't be good, I'm sick of virtue sitting, I'm sick of doing this stuff in my own strength, or I need peace and I can't find it anywhere. There's people who you are leading who are looking for the coherent, biblical, overarching, moral vision that, that Jesus brings into the world, that is the kingdom of God. So put your shoulder to the task yeah. of re-articulating with your words, your actions, the social structures that you build and lead. Put your shoulder to the task of let's together, the people of God, change coming up from the bottom across the world uh, in this renewal moment uh, of actually articulating and showcasing what a moral vision could look like driven by Jesus at the center. Great, great, a great call to arms. Um, Let's leave it there for this week. Uh, yeah. You can get more information if you subscribe. So you can head to rebuilders.co and join our mailing list there. We'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.